in this column, you write, the libertarian anarchist invariably falls into sloth, forever suspended between what is and what ought to be. He settles on a noncommittal idle incoherence, spinning venom like a cobra at those of us who do the oh, work. Oh, oh. <laughs> that sounds like me. Hey, okay. I'm just quoting you. <laughs> uh, all right, yeah. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, folks. You have found yourself here. With me in the Lions of Liberty studios once again. Well, you're not really with me sitting here, but you're listening to me, and you are listening to episode number 98. Before we get into today's show, I want to take a second to let you know about Health Excellence Select, an amazing alternative to Obamacare, which utilizes health sharing to cover your medical costs. That's Health Excellence Select. For more information, head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is the writer of WorldNetDaily.com's longest-running exclusive paleo-libertarian column entitled Return to Reason. She's also a published author, and her latest book is Into the Cannibal's Pot, Lessons for America from Post-Apartheid South Africa. She also blogs over at BarelyAblog.com. I am very pleased to be joined by Alana Mercer. Alana, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Hi, Mark. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here, because w- without my guests, it's just me talking for a half hour, and, and no one really needs to hear that, you know? But, um, you know, Alana, you recently wrote an article over at World Net Daily entitled Libertarian Anarchism's Justice Problem, and that, that's what I want to discuss with you for the bulk of the show today. But before I get into that, I was wondering if you could just briefly touch on how your political views first took shape and tell us why exactly you describe yourself as a paleo-libertarian. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, like very few libertarians, I'm actually from many places, so I think I bring a lot of baggage that does help formulate uh, how I look at liberty, and that's why I call myself a paleo-libertarian. I'm starting from that, and a paleo-libertarian is simply a libertarian who grasps that ordered liberty has a civilizational dimension, and that liberty is not an abstraction or a mere idea. You know, it's it's quite ironic, but so many libertarians almost make the error the neoconservatives make. They treat democracy as a universal system with universal appeal and applicability, and we tend to treat the non-aggression axiom in a, as a propositional idea as well. So a paleo-libertarian is someone who understands the philosophy of liberty arose in inner culture has a history and requires certain specific conditions to endure. And once liberty is treated as a principle denuded from all that, it doesn't have the, the fertilizer that would allow it to endure. So that's one. How did I begin? Around 1998, I began writing editorials in Canada. We had just migrated from South Africa, and that's a topic for another discussion. Except for a good dose of early Randianism, I knew nothing about the libertarian political philosophy, but without knowing it, I was espousing it. It came naturally, see? So um, within a year of my efforts editorializing, I had regular weekly columns with a gem of a Vancouver-based newspaper, 
a um, you know these days the local newspaper is only good to line the cage of my beloved parrot but um absolute rubbish dropped on 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 my driveway every every week but then it was do you still get a newspaper on your driveway every week i gave that up about a year ago <laughs> i do they they it's it's cursive they they do that to me i recycle the inserts and the rest my parrot loves shredding and and we have a a, a lot of fun with all the community news and the and the feminized uh, slobbering, et cetera, et cetera. So, but then it was hard-hitting, and I had a great start with a gem of a newspaper that even made made headlines in Time magazine. It was so controversial. So I went on to write uh, regular opinion for Calgary Herald, Financial Post, Intellectual Property, Global, Globe and Mail, and all the big uh, newspapers in Canada. It was a wonderful time because it didn't matter that I was outside of mainstream. Um, old school gatekeepers, editorial gatekeepers, seem to to want to, you know, showcase the stuff. Uh, things changed, of course. Um, and then along the way came the wonderful Walter Block. We all know him. Absolutely, past guest on this show. Yes, we do love him. Uh, he's a, he's a dear friend and a, a wonderful uh, leader, libertarian leader. He made contact with me through my column. He told me I was libertarian. Uh, in fact, he used two words, natural praxeologist, which I now uh, bear as a, a badge of honor. And he brought me into the libertarian fold officially, introducing me to his remarkable work and uh, to the work of others. So that's me in a nutshell. So that's interesting. You didn't really necessarily label yourself a libertarian before speaking with Walter Block. He basically just came to you and said, hey, I've been reading your stuff and you are a libertarian. So yeah, it's an interesting yeah. way that you came about that. Yeah. One thing I want to touch on that you mentioned there, you, you said that you kind of compared how libertarians sort of uh, sort of worship, I guess, the non-aggression principle in a, in a similar way that you see neoconservatives worshiping democracy. So I'm curious what you think about the non-aggression principle specifically. Are you in favor of that principle? Is that something oh, that you think is... Oh, of course. You, you can't be an, a libertarian, as, libert as Walter Block would tell you. You can't be a libertarian without imbibing it completely, absolutely. Understood. Yeah, it's, it's, it's intrinsic and, and a part of libertarianism. Except that I do not accept that it's a propositional idea that applies across cultures, across communities. I think it comes from a certain culture. It isn't an abstraction. And that's the essence of paleo-libertarianism, that we realize that the non-aggression axiom comes from a certain place. And uh, once that civilization, I don't know, is sundered through various uh, statist and other means, uh, it will have a, a hard time enduring. So do you think it's a, a good principle to go by in general, but you just don't see that it's it's practically applicable necessarily across the board today? Is that is that more how you view it? No, I'm sorry if I'm confusing matters. I think it's a universal principle, of course, but that it comes from a certain culture and civilization. As in we have to change sort of the, the hearts and minds of the people. And once we, let's say, let me be crass, and once we import the third world into America, say goodbye to the non-aggression axiom, okay? Have I, have I put, put the point across? Right, you see it more as something that, you know, sure, it's what we should be striving for and what we should be teaching, but not every culture is going to have this principle, so there are culture clashes there. Exactly, it comes, it comes from the bottom up, not from the top down. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. so let's discuss a little bit more your article here where you address the topic of justice. And I think this is a very important topic. I think it's actually the most important topic that people striving for a free society can address is this issue mm-hmm. of justice. So I'm so glad that you took the time to write about this. But before we really get into that further, can you just define, just to, so we can kind of be clear, the term libertarian anarchist? Because that's what you view as the group having a justice problem. Mm-hmm. So how does a libertarian anarchist, in your view, differ from, say, your view as a paleo-libertarian? Well, a paleo-libertarian may be an anarchist. The two are not mutually exclusive. The paleo-category is subsumed within the overarching libertarian one, right? Um, so it's a subconcept, a subspecies of libertarianism, and the two concepts need not be in conflict with one another. In my case, problems arise because of my acute awareness of as I call it, liberty civilizational dimension. That's why I have some critique of anarchism. But a a paleo-libertarian may be an anarchist. There's no problem there. But I think uh, the the, uh, definition of anarchism, and I don't want to to harp too much on, on, on that, but anyone who's read Hans Hopper knows that the logic of natural order is important. We would like to see all scarce resources privatized, including those entities entrusted with defending those resources and those uh, and their owners, right? In other words, the defense of life, liberty, and property will be in the hands of private protection agencies answerable to clients. And this society will be based entirely on voluntary, non-coercive transactions. Yeah, that's essentially the ideal of everything being based on individual liberty, on private property, and forming our sort of our institutions through that, through that prism. Mm-hmm. At least that's the way that's the way I view it. In this column, you write the libertarian anarchist invariably falls into sloth, forever suspended between what is and what ought to be. He settles on a non-committal, idle incoherence, spinning venom like a cobra at those of us who do oh, the work. Oh, oh. <laughs> that sounds like me. <laughs> hey, I'm okay. just quoting you. <laughs> uh, all right, yeah, spitting venom like a cobra at those of us who do the work he won't or cannot do address reality as it is. So what do you mean exactly by this statement? Do you think that you know, there are a lot of perhaps people that have anarchist views or that are libertarian anarchists per se, and that they play more in the realm of theory than you know looking at reality as it is? Exactly. Of course, you know, uh, sophisticated, brilliant people like uh, Hans Hopper or Walter Block know, know how to reason their way around this, but, but your average common garden um, anarchist usually shies away from from dealing with reality and for fear of, as I put it, compromising his theoretical virginity. And that is the sin of abstraction. I think the the figure of speech is uh, Ayn Rand's, who, uh, of course, um, as an objectivist, you know, demanded cleaving to reality. So there is a, a tendency to be suspended in the arid arena of pure thought between what is and what ought to be, and sometimes it does give way to sort of a flaccid approach to reality. You know, you you don't want to deal with policy and politics. You resent those of us who have to do that. I have to do it as someone who, who writes a, a column, a weekly column. And it can also give way to intellectual laziness. It seems like many anarchists, to me, 
are anarchists more as a rejection of the terrible things that they do see modern-day governments doing, mm-hmm. the war on drugs, aggressive wars, and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and, and they reject that, rightfully so, but then that also sometimes leads to this retraction from the political arena and a retraction from political debate, and I think that's absolutely the worst thing that people that actually recognize the problems mm-hmm. in our society can do. If anything, those are the kind of people that need to be more politically active and, and to help change the system as it is, because you know we can be anarchists all we want. You can be for non-aggression principle universally all you want, but if you take those ideals and just refuse to participate in the system that we do have, well, you're not going to be too effective in changing things. Yes, and when you twist into pretzels to to sit on a fence and, and revel in your immaculate conception, you know, you're so pure, you're not going to get uh, grubby. Uh, Murray Rothbard was always getting grubby. Sure, he even joined up with, uh, I believe, a socialist party once just because they had uh, a great anti-war position. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but he, he certainly was, was, was Pat Buchanan, right? Oh, yeah. He was all over the map because he wasn't afraid to associate with either the far right or the far left mm-hmm. if they were principled on, on particular issues. Exactly, exactly, yeah. There's a phrase you mentioned a moment ago, and I'm wondering if you could describe it a little bit further, what you mean when you say the sin of abstraction. I think that's a phrase that Ayn Rand coined, and that just means, you know, living in the arid arena of pure thought. To me, reality is the ultimate adjudicator. You know, people talk, for instance, let, let's give, give a practical example. You'll see, uh, you know, libertarian anarchists going on about the wonders of, is it Somali anarchism? Yeah, Somalia, is the, that's the one we, uh, we hear referenced. Would you invest scarce resources, namely your life and your property in Somalia? I don't think so. I can't say I would. <laughs> no, you wouldn't believe me. I, I'm from Africa. <laughs> I'm from Africa. That's yeah. a good place to be from. <laughs> so that's what I mean by the sin of abstraction. You know, talking in the abstract without understanding how your principles apply in reality. And just basically remaining in the realm of theory and never actually getting into the the actual political arena, essentially. Yes, and you almost are contemptuous of those who try and who do that. As an immigrant, I have to do the dirty jobs. Right, you you had no choice in order to deal with the government a little bit in order to physically be here now. Exactly. Now, what do you see as the biggest problems? Let's get into some of the meat of your article here. What do you see as some of the biggest problems that could occur with the basic anarcho-capitalist concept of the private production of defense and justice? Because you do seem to see that there could be some problems with the way certain some people do present that issue. Well, I just asked questions. I might be wrong and there might be solutions, but I haven't seen those solutions to my satisfaction. And the questions really are about, um, you know, the private production of defense is fine. We want to see as many private defense agencies as possible. That's simply great. But wouldn't they uphold different sets of law? And that's where the problem comes into focus. So an understanding of justice, as I understand it, as you know, and I'm, I'm a proponent of, of natural law, allows for competing agencies of justice for sure. It allows even for gradations of justice, but doesn't allow for fundamentally different views of justice. You're talking more a nihilistic type of uh, left libertarian moral relativism, and that is my fear. So why does natural law, in your view, not allow for competing views of justice? Is it the idea that you know there's one thing to have different systems for applying and administering justice, 
but mm-hmm. it, it's a different thing to actually have a different view on what that justice is. So do you think that's, exactly. the, that's the real problem there? Well, why don't we just, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a scholar of natural law, but natural law has always been a counterweight and a check on kings, on the legislative will, on democratic majorities. You know, traditional law, natural law theory, and, and I distinguish that from the Enlightenment, where we moved to a more propositional concept of natural law rather than an organic concept, but it draws on you know, the ancients, Ten Commandments, the philosophy of the Catholic scholastics, Thomas Aquinas, the Thomists, and so on. And the idea is that there is an unchangeable law from which all human beings benefit. In other words, man-made law should draw its force from this immutable idea of justice. And the idea is that there's a difference between what is naturally right and what is legally right. So the tribe, the king, the city-state, the nation-state are not the ultimate source of law. There is a fundamental higher law, a universal form of reason that encompasses enduring norms and morals that are unassailable. So some of us refer to revelation to justify this natural law, and others, like you and me, I guess, refer to reason and to the nature of man. Now this is what we have to reconcile with an anarchism anarcho-capitalism in which you might get systems of law upheld by legitimate agencies that uphold very different ideas of law to natural law. And that's a problem. Sure. And I'm glad you pointed that out. You almost took the words out of my mouth there when, when trying to differentiate between you know how people come to natural law. Many people might come to that from different methods. As you mentioned, some people might just mm-hmm. read the Bible and they see life, liberty, and, and that kind of thing as you know as what natural law is, a natural order that supersedes the sort of man-made laws of, of any individual's. Whereas, as you mentioned, you and I, I, I do agree with you. I come to this position through reason that natural law is something that is universal. It's not something anybody should be able to escape from, although many people do. Yeah, so you're not a utilitarian. No, absolutely not. <laughs> no, exactly. And, of course, whether you refer to um, God or, or, you know, reverence, or you refer to reason, it doesn't matter. You arrive at the same idea. Right. The only danger with people that might refer to solely to God as opposed to reason is, I don't know, what if one day someone someone decides that the God said something else? I mean, you know, we can have religious leaders that yeah. might make a new dictate. Oh, actually, God says this, but um, it doesn't exactly mean mean that. It actually means you can violate rights or, or something like that. Or exactly, or, or a, uh, a godly community buys a, a large property next to your community that practices uh, Sharia. I know that this is something you've written about a little bit, but let's just try to use that maybe as an example here. So what are the problems with Sharia law? I'm not that familiar with it that you would see as violating that natural order if it were, say, a community that just sprung up next to you that was practicing that. Wouldn't you see it as a problem if a... We're not going to debate whether this is true, authentic Islam or not. I mean, that's a debate for a different time. Sure. But the common law of the people who, who practice Islam does some strange things. For instance, we know that women occasionally are forced to marry their rapists or stoned for being raped or um, are under harsh arrest or shamed for being raped. Do you want to live next to a community and a private law agencies that uphold that sort of um, law? Does that comport with natural justice? I don't think so. 
Absolutely not. And I think that's an interesting point you make because, you know, people are always saying, or not people, <laughs> libertarians will often say, you know, we can't tell people how to live and this and that. And I would agree with that for the most part. But when it comes to violation of individual rights, when it comes to, say, something that, like you just mentioned, say, forcing a woman to marry her rapist, that's a very easy example. I think for me, it's a very clear case of a, a violation of that woman's rights. Mm hmm. You know, you can't escape natural law. Maybe you can physically today because you can get away from people and you can maybe form a community where that happens. Obviously, we have whole countries like Saudi Arabia where this mm -hmm. happens all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but in, in, I guess, an ideal libertarian society as I see it, no one can escape from natural law because everyone should be beholden to it. And while we have a natural law order that ideally everyone would abide by, we know that in real life a lot of people don't abide by that. So I like to differentiate between natural law and man-made law. Now, under natural law, like I said, if that community is next to you violating people's rights and forcing women to marry their rapists, as far as I'm concerned, anybody that is a, a sort of a, a defender of justice, a defender of individual rights, does have the right to go into that community and protect those people's rights. Now, a lot of people might take that to the extreme neocom position of invading countries yeah. and that kind of thing, and I don't support that at all because I, these foreign invasions are obviously not done in the name of individual rights. That's very clear by just looking at the, the sort of hypocritical stances that the U.S. government often takes with these countries where rights violations are occurring. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we can't just say, oh, it's okay, because they're, they're a different community, they have their different rules, and eh, that's fine. You know, we have to have a consistent moral basis for our positions. Exactly. I agree with you. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I just had to rant mm -hmm. there a little bit. <laughs> no, I, I agree. Let's talk a little bit further just how ideally, you know, you, you point out this problem that you see with anarcho-capitalism, where it could allow for communities to do these kind of things. So, now, how, in your view, should violent criminals be dealt with in a just society? Well, in many ways, we do deal justly with, with violent criminals, don't we? I mean, there are many instances of, um, you know, where justice is carried out. I mean, we have a lot of instances where we have proper investigations. We have a court of law that convenes, um, investigation of truth. And we also have amazing people who like the Justice and the, um, the Innocence Project. So that despite the depredations of the state and its overweening illegitimate justice apparatus, vestiges of justice still remain. And you see these glimpses all the time, magnificent examples of just law principles in trials where, you know, evidence is assembled meticulously, cases built scrupulously, Truth sought in an honest manner, and 12 men and women weigh the facts of a case against law to render justice. Now, we see this magnificently where the wrongly convicted are rescued by those heroes of the Innocence Project. And this is for people out there that might not be familiar, that is a group that... I think they bring attention to people that are on death row or maybe even have been put to death that were later found innocent or are trying to help people find innocent. Is that what the, mm -hmm, I believe that's, mm -hmm, that's the goal mm -hmm. of that group? So they often they rely on DNA evidence and they overturn uh, wrongful convictions. They do magnificent. Right. So we do have vestiges of justice in a generally unjust system. I'd love to see jury nullification, torture and practice, that sort of thing. But let's not denigrate the system of justice that we have. I would like to see all individuals punished for drug laws freed, right? Both of us would like to see that. Absolutely. Uh, SEC laws and so on, antitrust violations. So those would be ideal natural law reformations. 
But an anarchist might tell you, well, Alana, if you support changing laws, then you're just getting involved with the government and you're just another statist. Exactly, and that's the sin of abstraction. I'm going to get right. down and dirty and do those things, right? Understood. You've just given an example of the sin of abstraction. Let's retain our purity and not get involved. So we do have vestiges of justice in a very unjust system. So to say that we don't uphold certain natural laws is incorrect. Sure, we do in many cases, and in many cases we don't. And the best way to approach that is to heap praise upon the instances where justice is served and viciously attack the areas where they're not and, and try to change those areas. That's the way I see it anyway. Now, Alana, I've got just a couple more questions for you, but first I want to take a second to let everyone know about our sponsor, Health Excellence Select. Now, until last year, I was just like you guys. I saw my health insurance cost double and my deductible skyrocket thanks to the Obamacare health insurance mandates. Determined not to participate in this corporatist scheme, I sought an alternative and found out about health sharing, a fantastic concept in which your monthly fees go directly to pay the medical bills of others, not into the pockets of some crony capitalist fat cat. Health Excellence Select combines health sharing with a patient care personal assistant, 24-7 phone access to board-certified physicians, and discounts on dental, vision, and other benefits. The best part is that for most people, plans with Health Excellence Select are much more affordable than Obamacare insurance, and it meets the legal mandate, so you will not be fined for using it in lieu of insurance. For more information, head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. One more issue I want to address with you that you brought up in your column here is basically the concept of personalized justice that could come about in an anarcho-capitalist society where everyone is just hiring private defense firms and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And, and one thing you point out is the difference between a victim-centered justice system and a client-centered justice system. So can you just explain that a little bit further? The point I made in that article is to let the victim forfeit or choose his own form of redress has its problems. I mean, for misdemeanors, I see no problem. We have private solutions all the time. Many legal solutions are a result of private mediation or perfectly legitimate private solutions to nonviolent offenses. But I think I pointed out in that article that to leave punishment for murder, rape, and violent crime to victims or these proxies could be problematic and that could be what would arise in a stateless state of affairs where a victim would just choose let's say to let an offender go free or in favor of financial restitution and that cannot be tolerated or ignored unless you disagree i mean the fact that this happens under the state is not a sufficient reason to make it happen as a matter of principle under anarchy you know, in the cases of murder, for example, the right, if you forfeit the right to retribution in the case of murder, aren't you really saying that the right to life is a right that the victim can alienate, you know, at will or his proxies? To reduce justice uh, in the case of violent crime to a negotiated settlement between different parties to me seems like uh, moral relativism. No better than the leftist solution to justice. Sure, you're basically seeing an injustice, say, in a case where someone is raped, and instead of locking that rapist up, they can come to some conclusion where they just get some money from the rapist to go about their ways, and now the rapist can, is free to just do his own thing and hasn't really been served any justice. He just had to pay somebody off. Well, that is personalized justice, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. 
Mm-hmm. And besides, it also ignores the fact that a violent offender presents a, a danger to others in a civilized society. You don't live in an atomistic um, you know, society where you're the only individual who's impacted by violent crime. So these sort of arrangements can you know, legitimize the fact that the violent offender can go free, even though he does present a clear and present danger to others. Right. To me, justice should do several things. It should gain retribution for the victim, but it should also prevent the victim if they were the victim of an actual natural rights violation, as you and I would see it. They would prevent other people from being victims of that same person. And if that means confinement, I mean, that might not mean internal confinement. I think that the, that our justice system is incredibly flawed. Our prison system is incredibly flawed. It doesn't help to rehabilitate people. But that should be the goal, to only keep people behind bars in order to protect others. And our system does temper harsh justice um, with a consideration of each individual case. We allow variations, don't we? For example, um, I'm a complete fan of investigation discovery. I'm an addict. Um, you know, one episode detailed the life of a murderer on the land. He and his wife lived an upright life for decades, built businesses, helped the community, Remarkable. This is rare, but it was remarkable. These sort of mitigating circumstances need to be built into the law, and in many cases they are. We do consider parole, pardons, um, and so on and so forth. Right. But it's not uniform, and because because of the state, um, you know, there's a tremendous amount of injustice. Sure, because many of these laws are essentially arbitrary, not necessarily based on the concepts of justice as you and I would see them. Exactly. Alana, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate that you're writing about this issue in general, because I think it's something that not enough libertarians talk about at all, is the concept of justice. So I'm glad you're addressing that. Uh, before I let you go, feel free to plug anything you'd like to plug, your, your website, your column, and anything else you've got going on. I'll opt to plug for my book, which uh, also does delve into justice and to paleo-libertarianism, apropos South Africa. And it's Into the Cannibal Part, Lessons for America from Post-Apartheid South Africa, and it's available on Amazon. Thank you, Mark. I hope to speak to you soon again. Thank you, Alana. Take care. Take care. Bye. Hey guys, Mark Clare here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you the Morning Roar! That's right, every Monday to Friday we'll have a brand new edition of the Morning Roar where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at LionsOfLiberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed my interview with Miss Alana Mercer. Don't forget to check her work out over at worldnetdaily.com. It's funny, I actually have been reading Miss Mercer's column for quite some time, even back before I remotely considered myself a libertarian, before I really had those kind of principles. You might even say I was a little bit more of a neocon, uh, but I did read World Net Daily regularly, and they have a pretty broad scope of opinions within sort of the right side of the spectrum, I guess you would say, but I'm glad they do have some good voices over there as well, such as that of Alana Mercer, who does bring up some good issues, some things that we should be discussing, and, and she hit on a lot of good points there. 
there. And I think this brings up an interesting point regarding these concepts of anarchism, the concepts of justice. And I think that she is very accurate when she says that, you know, a lot of anarchists are just living in abstraction. They're sort of against everything that's going on with how they see the state, with the government. They correctly identify the violations of rights, but then they throw everything out that goes with it. They throw out the fact that there are many laws that do protect people. There are many laws that recognize the right of self-defense, for example. There's no reason we should reject that just because the quote-unquote state has that law in place. It's very important to be principled across all systems. You know, if we don't like our system because it's coercively funded, well, great, we should work to change that. But then we can't just point at everything within that coercively funded system and say, this all must be bad, even when it's good, you know, even when rights are defended, even when justice is served, even when the state, as you say, does actually defend the rights of other people. And this does happen. There are all sorts of times where police and other government agents will defend the lives of other people or when they will serve justice on someone who has violated the rights of others. And it's just a silly thing to just reject that completely just because the system overall is coercive. Now, the system is not magic. It's not coercive just because it sprung out of nowhere. The system is coercive because... The people in our society generally think it should be. I mean, they might not see it that way on the surface. They'll say you live here and you pay your taxes and you deal with the system as it is. And in many ways, we do have to deal with the system as it is, but that doesn't make that system right or just. And this is why I I don't say I reject the concept of anarchism outright, but you can't just have anarchism in the sense of just no government. You know, because that doesn't take into account the fact that people can violate the rights of others. I don't think every single anarcho-capitalist society that would be set up in that sort of system would be serving justice. And I've said it during the interview, I don't think anybody should have the right to escape from justice. No one has the right to violate the rights of others, even if their culture or even if their system says it's okay, even if they're doing it on their own private property. I think that is the major flaw with the anarchist view that many push forward. Even Some anarchists will even say you can form governments. But then to me, you're not an anarchist because you're okay with forming governments as long as they're based on private property, as long as they're based on justice. But I am glad that this is an issue that Alana is talking about at a major site. WorldNet Daily is a very well-known site, gets a lot of traffic, and this issue of justice is a very important one. It's one that I try to talk about here as much as possible, and that's what we try to focus on not only here on the show, but at our website, lionsofliberty.com. That is right. It is time for some plugs because we're advancing the ideas of liberty daily over there. Every single day, you can find new articles over at lionsofliberty.com. We've got the Morning Roar every day. We've got Felony Friday and Friday, Second Amendment Watch, Rand Paul Lessons and Minuses, where we evaluate the sayings, the comings and goings, the actions of presidential quasi-libertarian hopeful Rand Paul. There's just so much going on. You can find this show in so many ways, of course. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, and if you do, I would be honored if you would leave a rating and review for us. You can also subscribe over on Stitcher. You can find us at this website, lionsofliberty.com. You can also hear us on the weekend over at libertytalk.fm at 6 p.m. Eastern every single Saturday and Sunday, as well as throughout the week over at lrn.fm, our good friends over at the Liberty Radio Network. So there really is no excuse not to be keeping up with us, unless, of course, you just don't like the show, and hey, there's nothing I can do about that. It is what we is. I am who I am. And we're going to keep doing it each and every week here at the Lions of Liberty podcast. And until next time, folks... 
Did I really have to tell you to live long and live free? Head of Editing and Mastering is John Dawkins.